All right, our ushers are going to be bringing around note sheets and pencils now. Also, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and uh, Cohen would be happy to bring a Bible to your seat. So if you need one of those, lift up your hand and let us know. We uh, are grateful to preach the Word of God, and, and it's humbling to know that when I get into this pulpit, I get to exclaim the excellencies of Jesus, our Savior, the God who came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. So uh, in just a moment, we'll, we'll get to that. First, I just wanted to... Uh, clear a couple things up with our construction that's going on upstairs. Uh, you might have noticed that we're shuffling things around a little bit again. We have uh, finished the men's bathroom, essentially. There's a little bit left that needs to be done. Uh, but guys, you don't get to use it yet. Our ladies are using the, the men's bathroom for this week and probably for next week, too. So enjoy that, ladies. And um, <clears throat> our guys will continue to humbly use the children's bathrooms, which are about a foot off the ground, which is really, really exciting. So... Uh, We'll do that for another week or two. Um, but uh, yeah, the guys are making really great progress, and uh, we should see some major progress again this next week. We got all the things that we need essentially to finish that up. We just have to do the labor and, and, uh, and see the Lord uh, put these plans and these efforts to good use. So we're grateful for this building. We're grateful to be able to use it to the glory of the Lord, but we're also uh, thankful that if this building were to somehow fall away, if we were to lose all these material resources, Christ would still be excellent, and we would still be able to proclaim him no matter where we land. So we're thankful for what he has given. So we're in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've got a couple more sermons left in this chapter, which is uh, so uh, beautiful in its description of the importance of resurrection to the saints. And we live in a time when, when the body, the physical body, is thought of in such favorable and often prideful ways. The culture that we are in right now in the West is is very over-sexualized, and there's so much emphasis put on our appearance and the way that we look and, and our fitness that even secularists, the people who give no thought to God, they don't worship God, they don't believe the Bible, even secularists often will refer to their bodies as a kind of temple. So to the modern mind, it might seem strange that these Corinthians, these Christians in Corinth, were opposed to the idea of a physical resurrection. What's so bad about this idea of a physical resurrection? So I thought it might help us a little bit this morning to, to consider why Paul has to convince some of these Corinthians that the resurrection is first actually going to happen, and second, that it is a good thing, something to look forward to, something to praise God for. So if you think about the time that, that, that existed when Paul wrote this letter, the groundwork was already being laid in that first century for a second century heretical religion that came to be known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a, a philosophical approach to life that divided everything into two parts. Essentially, all living things had two aspects. They had an, an evil aspect and an inherently good aspect. They had a physical aspect, which was corrupt, and prone to sin, and they had a spiritual aspect which was always battling against the physical. The spiritual aspect was pure and desired to be holy and wanted what was good. This is Gnosticism. This isn't Christianity. This is Gnosticism. And so Gnosticism hasn't fully formed itself yet at the time that Paul writes this letter. But the ideas that created Gnosticism existed in the Roman Empire. And so physical things were often thought of by the common person philosophically as inherently bad and to be opposed. And the spiritual parts of things were often thought of as good and to be cultivated, especially through the acquisition of knowledge and philosophical enlightenment, what would become known as gnosis or secret knowledge. That was the aim of the Gnostics in the second century. And so there's already spreading a, a distrust of physical aspects of human existence in many parts of the Roman Empire, and perhaps this influence had already begun to touch the church in Corinth at the time that Paul writes this. Religious and irreligious Romans alike were interested in discussions regarding virtues and vice. The Romans loved their philosophy. And vice was something that Romans generally agreed was in a person's best interest to overcome or to at least control. And so, so much of vice is connected and associated with the flesh. Think about it. Adultery, greed, gluttony, drunkenness, murder. These are all things that society can look at and say, yeah, those things are probably bad. They are ethically not desirable. 
Uh, they are what the Romans would call vices. And since those things are so easily connected to our physical form, this probably contributed to a general distrust of the physical urges uh, produced by the human body. And as we've already seen in this letter, the Corinthians had a kind of obsession with spiritual things. Uh, they thought themselves to be very spiritual, whereas Paul had to show them in chapter 3 that they were less spiritual than they thought they were. They were quite immature spiritually. They were infants, in fact, concerning spiritual things. And then remember, they all, wanted, they all wanted spiritual gifts, right? But they wanted the ones that seemed overtly spiritual. They wanted to be able to speak in tongues. They wanted to be able to perform miracles. And this fixation with the spiritual gifts as opposed to the gifts that are more kind of common and, and connected with the physical body, such as hospitality or service or mercy, this overemphasis on the spiritual side of things may indicate why many of the Corinthians were thinking that a physical resurrection was something that they weren't really interested in, that they, don't, they didn't think was going to happen, for one, and, and they were, in some ways, appalled by it. So with that in mind, part of Paul's approach is to expose some illogical thinking in regard to the kind of resurrection bodies that believers will receive at the second coming of our king. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to talk about the kind of body we'll get in the resurrection. Now, we don't have all the details of this body. A lot will remain a mystery to us because that is God's will for us. The scripture doesn't talk in depth and at length about exact details of our resurrection body, but it is not silent on it. So let's see what Paul has to say as he teaches these Corinthians what to expect with this resurrection body. And he furthers the argument that this aversion to resurrection is unfounded and it should be rejected by the Corinthians. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 35 through 49 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of a body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The last Adam became a life-giving... I'm sorry, thus it is written, the first ad man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the eternal. And then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Let us bow and have a word of prayer. Thank the Lord for this passage and the good he will do to us by it. Father, we thank you for your holy and perfect word. And I pray, God, that in this moment you would use this time to open our eyes to the things that we need to see, Lord God, that you would get me out of the way and, and help our people to understand the, the richness of your scripture. God, help us to, to bring forth what is inherent in this passage and to not import anything foreign to it, Lord God. Let us thank you that the word of God, of God is enough in and of itself. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to understand more clearly what the resurrected body will be like, that we will have a great gratitude in our hearts for your promise of it, and we will look forward with great expectation to the good you will do when we have these bodies. We love you and we pray for clarity in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This first uh, section, or the section of 1 Corinthians, begins with a rebuke to the people in Corinth. He says, you foolish people. Now, 
who does Paul consider foolish? He considers foolish those who have formed their skeptical opinion of the resurrection, not according to what God has revealed or even on the precedence that was set by their Savior Jesus Christ. They have formed their ideas of what the resurrection must be based solely on their intellect and on their logic and on the philosophies of the day. So when Paul says in verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of a body do they come? He's not pointing out the questions of a person who's humbly and earnestly trying to learn more about the doctrine of resurrection. If he was, calling them fools would be overly harsh, wouldn't it? It would be a mean-spirited rebuke. No, those questions that he frames in verse 35, Paul's referring to the arguments that some of the skeptical Corinthians have made against the resurrection. So those who are preaching that Christians don't ever get resurrection ask those kind of questions to try to put doubt in people's hearts about the truth of the resurrection. Some have been going around saying that there is no bodily, physical life after death. And they've been trying to convince others with these kind of arguments. They might say something like, why would God want to resurrect the physical body, a body that's been in the grave? Is there, it's there because it no longer has usefulness in the first place. It's there because it got old and it collapsed or because it got sick or because it was damaged beyond repair. And so the person that was inhabiting that body died. Why would we want to bring that back up from the dead? And then being in the grave has only made it less useful because, of course, it's been going through decay. It's become food for worms. It was Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher, an early opponent of Christianity, who said that the bodily resurrection was the hope of worms, or, quote, what soul of a man would any longer wish for the body that had rotted, end quote. So this was a common idea from those who heard about resurrection being preached among Christian churches and thought to themselves, why would anyone want that old dead body that's been under the dirt for all this time? Does the body just come out as it was? Lying, rotten, and decomposed? It was the assumption of some of the Corinthians who were against the idea of resurrection. And it is a similar kind of confusion that Mary and Martha had when Jesus intended to raise Lazarus. You remember this? When, when their friend had died, and it had been several days that before he had learned of his death, and then eventually came to that place where they had laid him to rest. Uh, Martha and Mary are, are thinking pragmatically. So in John eleven thirty nine, 39, Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. They didn't expect a healed Lazarus to rise. They expected a zombie Lazarus to rise. And so Paul calls the Christians who are thinking this way, he calls them fools. Now, foolishness is accurately described as a refusal to look to God for understanding. A fool is not somebody who doesn't look for understanding. It's somebody who refuses to look in the right place for understanding. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so you can deduce from that that they are looking for wisdom, but they're looking in places where God is not. When one sees the world through their own eyes, without consideration of the heavenly perspective of the one who created all things, who sustains all things, who sees all things, and they can properly be scorned as foolish. They're neglecting the best resource they have. The only true chance they have to know what is right and good is far from them if they turn their eyes from the living God. And so there are many who are foolish, yet very eager to pursue intellectual things, to try to be wise without the cosmic referee of wisdom and truth. It's, it's the errand of a fool. It's like some of us who are too proud to look at the assembly instructions for something we're trying to put together, thinking that we are plenty wise enough to figure it out on our own. I remember as an English student trying to get my bachelor's degree that they were talking about different ways that you can put an English degree to good use. And they said, you can write technical manuals and instructions. And I was a young man at that point, even dumber than I am today. And so I thought to myself, what an ungratifying job to spend all your time writing manuals that someone's just going to throw in the garbage because nobody uses those things anyway, right? As a young man, I would just dive in and try to put it together myself. And I don't know how many things I have ruined trying to assemble without the insight of the person who designed it, right? Why would I try to put that thing together with no regard to the instruction and the direction of the person who actually spent thousands of man hours creating that product? And yet we do it in our pride. We, we, we think we can figure life out 
on our own. And so we, we turn our eyes away from God and we think we can, we can discern truth by ourselves. Jesus is not just able to restore vitality to a body that has expired. He is able to heal it. He is able to make that body something better than it was before when it went into the ground. The body that will rise again will be more than just a continuation of the flawed temporary vessel that we call home when we died. Now, Paul will offer a, a lesson concerning the type of bodies that Christians will one day enjoy when the resurrection has occurred. They won't be rotted. They won't be used up corpses. They'll be something much more desirable. And he begins this lesson with an agricultural analogy, which is one of his favorite things to do, right? Paul is a master of analogy. And he's already used agricultural analogies a couple times in this letter. You might remember back to chapter 3 when he's talking about the division they had about their leadership. And he said, why are you looking at us as, as if we're different teams here? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one that brought the growth, right? So he's using these analogies to help them understand with terms that they can relate to. He says it again in chapter 9, verse 7, concerning a minister's right to be paid. He says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits, right? If you're going to go through all the, the labor of, of putting together a, a, a field and sowing the seed, then of course you should be able to enjoy the fruit of it. And he goes on to say, don't muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain. Another illustration from the agricultural realm. So the Apostle Paul knows how to use a good analogy. And he does so here again, urging his brothers to compare the resurrection to the common everyday way that God uses the, causes the crops to grow all around these Corinthian believers. A seed is itself a living thing, is it not? It's organic matter. And in order for that seed to accomplish the purpose for which it was designed, it has to go through a traumatic event. It has to be buried in the ground. And it has to itself experience essentially the destruction of its organic form in order for it, to, for it to accomplish what it's meant to accomplish. The seed falls apart. It stops being a seed. And it does so for good reason. In the process of ceasing to be what it was, that seed can assume a new, superior form. It, be, it becomes the matter by which new life is created. In the resurrection, our temporary bodies act like a kind of seed for the eternal. The, the temporary perishes, and in perishing, it offers up what God will then use to form a body fit for eternity. Now, Paul may have borrowed this analogy from the teachings of Jesus, even. If we look back at John chapter 12, verse 20 through 26, uh, Jesus taught, Now among those who went up to worship the feast were some Greeks, and some of these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow after me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so here in John chapter 12, Jesus points out that his imminent death would not represent a net loss, but rather an incredible gain for the kingdom of heaven. By his suffering and death, sin would be defeated. And death would no longer reign over the hearts of the saints. So his death on the cross would act like seed that would bear in time an immeasurable harvest of good fruit. Consider also Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, where Paul also writes to the church in Philippi, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious Body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So here clearly Paul has taught that the body that will be resurrected in the last day is not going to be the exact body that's sitting in your seat right now if you're a believer. It's going to be something different, something transformed to be more like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. God has the power to subject all things to himself, including the laws of nature. 
Water becomes wine at his word. The waters of the sea, tumultuous and tossed to and fro, become solid ground for him to walk upon. A raging storm becomes peace at a word from Jesus' lips. And the lowly body that was long dead and decayed is transformed by divine supernatural power to become something new and glorious at the command of God. As a little bit of an aside here, I've from time to time heard from believers a question. If a Christian is cremated, if they die in this world and they allow their bodies to be put through the fires of a furnace and turned into ash, do they forfeit the resurrection? Is it wrong for us to go through the fires of a furnace? Or is it biblically commanded for us to be buried in our bodily form? And again, I would say this is thinking logically, but without factoring in the power of God. I mean, it is logical for a man to think that how are you going to put together a body that's been burned into the tiniest minute ash? How can you do that? But it is ludicrous to think that God cannot do that. If you know the God of creation, then you know he has the power to knit together even the pieces of a body that are spread throughout the universe, he could do it. Will those who are martyred by fire not enjoy resurrection? Think about that, friends. Should we not have great confidence that those who are passed through the flames against their will, that God will give them a heavenly body that is fit for worship eternally? Does God show partiality to the rich? You know how much it costs to be buried these days? It costs a ridiculous sum of money. Even just getting cremated, if you find it, it's like $3,000 to be cremated. So is there a subtle sort of, uh, a subtle, sort of, subtle sort of for, um, favoritism to the rich who can afford a plot of ground and to be buried in that plot of ground? No. You know, sometimes the decision about what happens to our body is not even made by us. Sometimes it's made by others after we die. Should we believe that our eternal fate really is in the hands of our relatives, some of whom may not even be believers? Let's not think in such a limited human way. There is precedence, I think, for treating the dead body with respect and gratefulness. And we think about the way that uh, those Marys went to the tomb after they had already prepared the body of Jesus and put it in, into the ground. They, they felt like there wasn't a good enough job done. They wanted to anoint it better and more properly, more ceremonially. They had rushed to get it done before the Passover. And so think about how careful they were with that body. Think about how Joseph desired to have his bones buried, not in Egypt, but back in the land of the Hebrews. So, so we are, uh, are, are missing a part of Scripture if we think there is no reverence to be given to the body. And, uh, and that has made me think a little differently about, about uh, cremation. But there's nothing in Scripture that demands that we don't get cremated. And so it is not wrong to do so. And we should be careful not to create laws where the Bible has not created laws. The, the bottom line is this, that you're going to die. And that body that you're in right now is going to fall apart. Either time will turn it into ash or a fire will, one way or the other. It's not going to be a useful thing unless God does something supernatural to revive it. There are two distinct ways that Paul's going to lean heavily on the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis in this passage as he develops his argument. First, in verses 38 through 41, Paul's going to remind his readers that the God of resurrection, the God who can bring life again to someone who's experienced physical death and entombment, is the same God who made all of creation in the first place. He alludes here to the fact that there's a great diversity in the universe that God created in chapter 1 of Genesis. He's made all things, right? He spoke and things came into existence. And each thing that God has made has received a body of sorts, a physical manifestation of its being. And that physical body matches God's will for its design. Creatures that were meant to fly through the air have special skeletal structures. Their bones are not filled with marrow as ours are. Many of them are hollow. And they do that so that the bones can still be strong, but yet they can be lightweight. So that the muscles that are attached to those bones and the sinews which cause that tremendous amount of force needed for flight can overcome gravity and can make that creature soar into the skies. God designed those creatures specifically to do those things and gave them the right body for the task. Creatures that dwell in the sea, they don't breathe oxygen the same way that you and I do. God has specially designed them to make use of the water in which they live and to harvest oxygen from it in different ways that we cannot. 
and to dwell in it comfortably and efficiently. Even the heavenly bodies reflect the efficiency of God's design. And stars may appear to be simple lights in the sky. But our own sun, which is one of those stars, has been so precisely placed in the heavens that this gaseous body that it has provides the necessary light and heat to facilitate the lives of millions of living things roaming around on planet Earth. And it's my understanding that uh, there's a good possibility we'll be having a small group uh, based on the wonders of creation and why we can have confidence in a, in a young earth model of understanding all of creation. So you can learn more about these kind of design elements and details of God's handiwork in that class when it's coming up. God exercises his sovereignty by speaking into existence a complex universe filled with diverse life, and each of those lives is suited to the environment in which he has placed them. God's sovereignty over creation is no less authoritative in the recreation of our bodies into heavenly vessels. We should not make the mistake of thinking that our resurrected bodies will be just like the bodies we inhabit now, for after the final judgment, life will be considerably different for those who trust in Jesus Christ. They're going to be in a different environment. We know some of the facts from Scripture about how life will be different in eternity rather than here on fallen earth. We know there will be no death, so there will be no degradation. Some of us who have wrinkles on our faces or gray hairs in our beard. We don't have to worry about our body starting to expire over time when we get to that heavenly realm because there will be no death. So there will be no downgrade over time like we have to fight against here on earth. There will be no need for marriage in heaven, right? We learn from the words of Christ that marriage is an earthly covenant. It has significance and beauty, but in heaven there will be no marriage. And so we will need the parts of our body anymore, we won't need those parts of our body that work towards reproduction. I don't think there's going to be feminist and masculine considerations in heaven. There's no need for reproduction. There is no darkness in heaven, so I have every confidence that our eyes are going to be different. They're going to have a considerably different design because the light of Christ will be around us always. When God creates a living thing, he gives it a suitable body, fit for the environment. And since the environment will be much different in the new heavens and the new earth, we can expect the resurrected body that he has in store for us to be in many ways different than the one we have now. In creation, God formed all things for their environments. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's going to raise our bodies from the grave, but those bodies will be advanced past our current forms because they need to be useful not to the environment of an earth stained by sin. They need to be useful in a new heavens and a new earth where life will be quite different. So beginning in 43, Paul represents or presents rather a series of contrasts that will help us to think differently about the bodies that will one day replace our earthly ones. There's a chart in your notes if you want to take that home that has this comparison laid out in a visual format, but we're going to work through those one by one. So let's consider some of these changes a little more closely. The new bodies that we receive at resurrection will be different. The ones that we have now were sown as perishable. They were given to us with an expiration date, but the ones we will receive at the resurrection will be raised imperishable. That means that our bodies in the resurrection will be indestructible. Men, when you were 17, you were thought you were indestructible. You were not, right? You learned that the hard way. But all of us will be indestructible in the resurrection. We will be incorruptible. There will be no way for those heavenly bodies to see corruption or the defilement of sin. Think about the frustrations that we all have to deal with as a result of our human body's corruptibility. Right now we're praying fervently, and I pray that, that you're lifting these two up throughout the week, Cameron Strother and Yvette Biggerstaff, both of whom are fighting very difficult battles right now. Yvette has been um, on this ECMO machine now for a couple of weeks. Things have not improved greatly for her. And this young lady's got a, a two-month-old baby at home that she's barely even seen. She delivered and has become sick, and it's just gotten worse and worse so pray for that family. It's so frustrating for her mother and her father and her husband to see her form on this machine with a thousand tubes going into her body and to want to do anything they can to make the situation better and to not be able to do so. How many frustrations do we have to deal with 
in these human bodies. Cameron Strother, a strong young man, just barely 30 years old, and he's been in the hospital now for weeks and probably has at least a couple more to go. He's got a fungal infection, and it's affected various parts of his body, including one of the uh, ventricles in his heart. So we need to pray for these brothers and sisters. Uh, we got to have a little taste of, uh, of the weakness of the human body in our home just recently as Justice broke his arm. And we've been teaching him how you know, that's part of life. In this life, we can't expect our bodies to stay strong and fervent forever. They're going to go through these waves of health and sickness. They're going to go through these times of injury and repair. And it takes trusting in the Lord and patience to deal with the hardships and the inconveniences of that. 2 Corinthians uh, 5, verses 1 through 5, the second letter that we have that was written to the Corinthian church, lends us an encouragement uh, through these times of trial and difficulty. The Apostle Paul would write in that letter, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So some would say that when you go to heaven, you become a spirit, and now you just float around in the, in the heavenly places. You don't have a physical body. That's not true. He's saying we're not trying to get rid of our mortal body. We're trying to get a better mortal body. We want this. We don't want to become naked. We want a better clothing for our soul, a better physical dwelling place that is fit for the eternity that God has guaranteed to us through the Spirit. So what is sown is perishable. What goes into the ground dies and falls and fades away. What is raised is imperishable and permanent. Secondly, what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Why does the body die, friends? It dies because of our disobedience. It dies because the wages of sin, the breaking of God's law, the consequence of that is that we would experience being cut off from the living God through death. There will be a beauty in the, in the day to come when God gives us a new body that is no longer touched by the stain of sin. There will be a beauty to our eternal bodies that is not possible to comprehend in even the prettiest human form that exists today. The secular humanist society that we live in has an obsession with the body, an obsession with youth, right? The Western concept of beauty is anchored in youth. People are constantly spending money trying to smooth out their wrinkles and, and try to make themselves look like they did when they were 20. And this is kind of a, a, a useless task because usually it just makes a person look like they're obviously faking youth. That's really what ends up happening, right? So you have billion-dollar industries trying to slow down the aging process, all wanting to counteract the weathering effects of age. But in the resurrection, we're not going to have to deal with that at all. There will be no death, so there will be no wrinkles. There will be no wear and no tear, no leathering of the skin, no varicose veins, no baldness of the head. None of that. Ideal forms, glorious forms. But glory is more than just beauty, isn't it? Our new bodies will be gloriously unhindered by the wages of sin. There will be a beauty that is inherent in them. There will be a truth about our new bodies, a purity that is untouched by disobedience and a turning away of God, from God. There will be a rightness to them that will make them reflect the image of God so much more accurately than we can do today. So these imperishable bodies will be resurrected in an imperishable form. These bodies that were sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. And third, what is sown in weakness is going to be raised in power. Now this can mean one of a couple of different things. This could actually mean that, that they'll be raised in the power of God. That God is the powerful one which will raise them. So perhaps it is pointing to the hand of the Almighty who is, is making us alive again. And if that's the case, then amen. That's a power that we should all rejoice in. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
for above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Far beyond those powers is the power of God. So perhaps that is what Paul is referring to here. The, the Greek's a little ambiguous. That's a power worth celebrating. It's a power that we should be joyful about. But it's also possible in this Greek phrase here that when Paul describes our earthly bodies as being raised in power, that he could be revealing to us that our heavenly bodies will be more powerful than our earthly bodies. And that would make sense, friends. Surely we will be more capable of serving God with our physical bodies, more capable of accomplishing good in his name. Perhaps the phrase that is so sadly common among us now and is so very true that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, perhaps that phrase will be completely irrelevant when we get to the new age because there will be no weakness in the body. There will be a power that is completely sufficient for all that God has called us to do. The spirit will be able and so too will our eternal, eternal bodies be able to do the things that the spirit is willing to do. And then finally, what is sown in natural body will be raised a spiritual body. Now, that is not to say that they will be immaterial. We should not make that mistake there. We have plenty of reason to trust that our new physical bodies or our new bodies will be physical bodies. Uh, some examples of that are that we see Christ in his resurrected form feasting. We hear about the new Zion being so physical, so tactile. We see physical bodies singing praises to God in eternity. So we, we know that the new bodies that will be given are not just spiritual, they're not just holograms, they are real physical bodies. So the contrast here is in the fact that our resurrected bodies will be capable of much good and will no longer be a hindrance to us as per the temptations of the flesh. They will be physical, but they will not be carnal anymore. They will be tr proper tools for the expression of the spiritual reality that God has established in us through grace. It is quite difficult to imagine what life in a resurrected body will be like but perhaps our best chance of knowing what some of these things mean is to look at the prototype upon which our resurrection is founded. In Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Paul writes, For if we have been united with him, Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him, Jesus, in a resurrection like his. So what is Christ-like in his resurrected form? That's not completely unknown to us, is it? Because Christ rose from the dead and didn't go immediately to the heavens, but he arose to show himself to us and to have fellowship with the saints for 40 days after his resurrection. So if we look back at that time and the scriptures that refer to him showing himself to others, we might get a little glimpse of what our resurrected glorified bodies might be like. So what was he like in his physical form? He was recognizable. Some people say, well, I look, well, I know that I'm me, <laughs> Will you know that I'm me in, in the next life? We see that Jesus was recognizable in his risen form, and yet not exactly like he was before. Remember that Mary at the tomb on the third day mistook him at first for the gardener in John 21. Now that could have just been because her mascara was running into her eyes as she wept, I don't know. But it's quite possible that there was such a glory to him that she didn't immediately recognize Jesus. And yet in time, all who saw him, including the two on the road to Emmaus who had their eyes kind of shielded from seeing that it was Jesus, all of them came to see that it was the true risen Christ. And they were able to confess that they had seen him in the flesh. This was the very Jesus that died upon the cross. They were able to identify him as Jesus. They were even able to see some of the marks that were left behind from his experience at the cross. Those scars in his hands and his side will remain forever but they're not going to take away from his beauty at all. No longer will we think of those scars as a flaw. We will think of them as his perfection. They are the marks of his victory over the enemy, death and sin. So he will be recognizable after his death. We too should think of ourselves as being recognizable. We'll be able to see each other in death and see who we are and identify those things. Jesus appeared and he also disappeared. So our ability to move through space and time will likely be very different with our resurrected bodies. In Luke 24, 31, it says, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. This is Jesus speaking to those travelers on the road to Emmaus. As soon as they recognized who he was, 
It doesn't say he got up and he left and went on his journey. It says he vanished from their sight. He was tangible, yet he could be there one moment and not there the next. We know that he could probably walk through walls. John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So why would that detail be mentioned there unless it was pointing to some supernatural power in Christ? Why would they say the doors were locked and then they unlocked the doors and let him in? Now they're saying that the doors were locked and there was no explanation for it, but Christ appeared among them. So I think there's reason to believe that when we get a resurrected body, we won't be hindered by travel or space. We may be, like Christ, able to just be where we want to be and need to be. That's a great change from the bodies that we have now, which are so finite and in one one little place. I don't think it means we'll be omnipresent as God is. That is a a feature that only God in his divinity can uh, can boast about. But it it does seem like we will be in multiple places at multiple times, or in different places in in the blink of an eye. We know that he ate with his brethren at least three different times. It's It's funny, if you go back and read the passages where Jesus shows himself to the saints, he's eating like almost all the time with them. He says, here's some bread, and he grabs some bread, and he eats some bread. He has some fish with, with Peter by the, seas, uh, by the shores of the Galilean Sea. So I think that we should expect to eat, to feast in the, the life to come. And not for the same reasons that we eat today, not to push off death for another day, but we feast because God is our provider, and his provision is good. So it would be a totally different attitude towards food and the reason that we eat. We know that Jesus ascended into the heavens. In Acts chapter 1-9, we see that that he appeared to the brothers brothers, uh, in, in the earliest of churches and he helped them to understand their commission. Then it says, and when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Brother and sister, you might be able to fly in your resurrected form. It's possible. Christ, who is the prototype, the forerunner of our resurrection, was unhindered by gravity. So this is the resurrection that our resurrection is patterned after. This is the first fruits of a harvest that will stretch to every elect man and woman throughout time. In the final portion of our passage, we find Paul's second reference to the early chapters of the book of Genesis. He's already alluded to God's work in creation. And now Paul speaks to the role that Adam played in being the first fruits of a people who would inevitably go on to be just like him. A people who would inevitably go on to be sinners, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And this is an important distinction because he's He's associating the true believer with the man from heaven, right? He's showing a contrast here. And what he's doing is he's, he's pointing back to Genesis 2-7, which says, And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So just as the first Adam caved into sin and broke the law of God, so too do we after his pattern. And just as he was forced to toil and labor by the sweat of his brow and to face the curses that were levied in chapter 3 of Genesis, so do we. Just as he had to taste the difficult bitterness of death and before that had to endure a body that marched sadly towards the grave, so do we have to deal with these things. Adam was our first prototype. He was our first model, the pattern that we followed to begin with. But here, Paul is happy to point out a second model, a second prototype that proceeds and sets the pattern for all who will follow after him in faith. And we know who that is, don't we? It's the second Adam, the better Adam. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I hope by now that you're able to recognize that Paul's speaking of the two covenants that these men represent and stand for. Every one of us, every person who walks the face of the earth today is a part of one of two covenants. We are either in the covenant of Adam, a covenant that has been failed miserably, a covenant that leads to death and destruction, a covenant of which the wrath of God is fully upon. Or, by the grace of God, we are now in the new covenant in Jesus' blood. A covenant of redemption, a covenant of mercy and peace, a covenant where the wrath of God has been satisfied not upon sinners like us, 
but on the sinless one, Jesus Christ, who came and took on flesh and fulfilled the law in every way that he obeyed the Father. Exactly what the resurrected body will be like is of little importance if the inquirer is in the wrong covenant. Why argue about the differences if that person doesn't yet trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior? You see, the two bodies in our need for a new one must cause these Corinthians to circle back around to a more pressing question. Are these Corinthians headed for the new immortal body fit to worship and serve the king forever in the new heavens and the new earth? Or is their faith in the philosophies and the emptiness of man? Are they content instead to figure things out on their own and to creatively come up with their own ideas of what the afterlife might be like? Or are they trusting in the instruction and guidance of God himself? Each of us must first deal with the body of sin and attain to a spiritual renewal through the grace of Jesus Christ before we have the blessed assurance of a risen body which will be in every way better than the one that we are living in now. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So God put life into Adam and he, he ruined it. Jesus instead puts life into us and we live in that life. But all this happens in the proper order. You cannot attain to the resurrection of the dead without first seeing your physical body be laid in the ground, be used as the seed. So which covenant are you in? Are you in the covenant of Adam today? A covenant of condemnation, a covenant that says, do this and live when you know that you can't do this. And so surely you will not live. Are you trusting in your own righteousness, a righteousness that is flawed and inconsistent and incomplete? Are you in a covenant of death, a covenant that marches on to a terrible bitter end, a covenant of dust where your body will just disintegrate into the earth forever? Or are you in the new covenant of Jesus Christ's blood, a covenant of reconciliation, a covenant that makes one a citizen of heaven, a covenant whereby you are invited through grace to partake of something you don't deserve in, like a wedding feast that you didn't pay for, and yet God provides the, the beautiful garments for which you can be appropriately invited and participate in this wedding feast. A covenant that restores the image-bearing intentions that God has for his people that God has initially designed into man and woman. Are you in that covenant today? You can only be in that covenant one way. It's not through your church attendance. It's not through the dollars you put in the offering plate earlier on. It's not in some radical mission that you accomplish for God. You're only in the covenant of Christ through the work and the victory of Christ. Through the things that he did on your behalf, through his triumph over death, you can live today. I pray that that is the covenant that you are in by faith. I pray that the Holy Spirit is waking you up to the realities of your own sin, that you might repent today and turn away from this life of independence from God and live forever with this great expectation that Christ will one day raise you up and make you new so that you can enjoy his presence and worship him forever. While the re reality of resurrection is of first importance, remember resurrection is a critical aspect of the gospel, the nature of that resurrection, what our bodies are going to be like, is really secondary stuff. It is just icing on the cake. If it's primary stuff to us, if we're so caught up in the details of the resurrection, then we're missing the point. If Christ is not your all in all, then you're not even going to taste the resurrection. So let me share one last note in the closing verse of this passage. It says, just as, we have been born the, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Sometimes I think people make too much of little details of the Greek and they try to base a whole kind of scenario off of a little difference in a word. But sometimes I think it's really useful. Here in verse 49, that last section, it says, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. There are two textual variants there when it says we shall also. The majority of the texts of scripture that we see over time bear this formulation, we shall also. It is future tense. But we do have a few very early manuscripts, just a handful. And they, they write it slightly different. They say, so too shall we. So it would read like this. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, let us also, present tense, bear the image and likeness of the man of heaven. 
Now, if you get into the deep scholarly dive of which one probably makes more sense, the future tense or the present tense, um, I lean towards the present tense. And there's, the significance in this might seem small, but it's actually, I think, quite, quite refreshing. We don't just look forward to bearing the image of God. One day you will have the resurrected body that's going to match the one that ascended into the heavens in Acts chapter 1. But even today, with your decrepit body, with your faulted body, with your sick body, with your broken body, with your body that still sometimes falls into sin, even today, because of the promise of resurrection and because of the work of God in your, in your life right now, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, you can right now bear the image of the man of heaven. You can walk as one who is redeemed. You can walk as one who is forgiven. And I encourage you, church, to walk as that man. Don't let the glory of full salvation be something that only happens in the end. Think about how you are new in Christ today and recognize that because of that newness, because of the promises of Christ, you don't have to be a slave to the power of sin anymore. You can trust in the Lord God and by His grace, you can overcome the challenges that you face. You can stand as representatives of God in times of great trial and suffering. You can even be martyred and burned at the stake and still have the joy of knowing that Christ is yours and you are His. Let us bear the image of Christ now through faith by honestly living according to the hope that has been afforded to us by Christ. We will be like Him in His resurrection one day but we can also be like him now by conforming to his image and by joyfully submitting our form and our function to the Lord who has already set us free from the destruction of spiritual death by way of the cross. Would you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? We thank you, Lord God, for the great victory that you have won for us. Help us to think about these spiritual realities and be so wonderfully full of gratitude because of the fact that the Holy Spirit is what makes it possible for us to see and believe these things. You're not going to figure these things out in a laboratory or by some human model of theory, God. You're only going to see these things through the divine revelation. And so we thank you for your word, which has opened our eyes to what is to come. And we know there's much yet that we have, have not yet seen, but we thank you, Lord God, for the anticipation that you give to us. Help us to make good use of these temporary bodies, Lord. Though they will one day go into the ground and be destroyed as a seed is destroyed, let us still handle them with care. Let us be thankful for them, Lord God. Let us be cautious with them, but let us not be so cautious that we don't boldly go forth and proclaim the truth that you are the one and only Savior. And any other way of salvation that the world lifts up as a viable source for salvation is, is nothing short of a lie. And so, God, we praise you for being the truth for being the way and for giving us life. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.